before you this morning, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather, uh, to look at your word, to hear from you, to evaluate our lives, to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit uh, in our marriages, in our, our other relationships in life. Father, we just thank you for this privilege. Uh, we pray that we wouldn't waste it. We pray that you'd give us attentive hearts, attentive minds. Uh, help us to apply what we hear. Help us to honor you uh, in, in the present when others see us, and help us to honor you even in secret when it seems like no one else is around. Lord God, give us grace to hear. Give me grace to speak and to make Christ look good as he really is and help your gospel to be what we cling to, your grace. So in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. How are you doing at blessing those whom you share life with? How are you doing at blessing those whom you share life with? Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's just a friend, a coworker. That question can hang in the air sometimes. It can be somewhat abstract and just in the clouds. We don't have something concrete to ground it. And so I want to say something about husbands and wives for a second, uh, how husbands often fail to bless their wives. It's somewhat humorous at first. Uh, Husbands, there's so many situations where husbands don't know what to say to their wives, right? Happens all the time. What about when a wife says, honey, did you notice my new haircut I got yesterday? He doesn't know what to say. He kind of freezes up. Or uh, maybe it's not a question, it's just a statement. Honey, you don't have to get me anything for Christmas this year. Or you don't have to get me anything for my birthday. What does a husband do with that? Uh, Does he challenge it? Does he ask more questions about that? But here's the classic example. Here here it is. It often happens. You're about to go out for a special occasion. The wife, she's lounging in her favorite jeans or t-shirt, just some kind of comfy clothes. And she says, I don't know what to wear. And she darts off into the room. She's going to have a wardrobe change. The husband, he's fiddling around with a gadget. She comes out. He kind of knows it's coming, but it still catches him off guard. Does this dress make me look fat, right? Does this dress make me look fat? Does this outfit look okay? What does a husband say in that moment? All the alarm bells are going off in his mind. He wants to say something. He doesn't know what to say. Well, there's a few ways he could answer, right? He could just kind of say, kind of make a noise with his mouth. He he hesitates. But if he pauses too long, he's just wasted the opportunity. He's just showed that he's afraid to really share what he thinks. Or maybe he might answer and say, I don't know, what do you think, sweetie? He just puts it right back to her. Or maybe he might answer and say, no, honey, you look great. But if he says it too fast, she might think, did you even look? Are are you even noticing this? Uh, Or he might answer, it's no big deal, babe. We're going to be late. Let's go. You don't want to brush it off if you're a husband. Or he might answer, this is kind of sneaky. He might pretend not to even hear the question. 
he might say something like, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Did you say something? Or he might even answer, it's not the dress that makes you look fat. It's, no, no. Never go there as a husband, right? Never go there. Uh, Or he might just have the distraction tactic. And I I think this one is one that I kind of go with a lot of times. Are you wearing that because it's cute or because of how comfortable it makes you feel? That's kind of tricky, right? So what is she really asking? What is she really asking? We can laugh at this, but it is hard to communicate in a way that gives blessing to those that we share life with. It's hard to do. The only advice I have as a husband that I'm still trying to work on is when your wife asks you a a legitimate question like that, just stop what you're doing, look her in the eye, and give her your attention. and Try to speak kind. I don't don't know. I'm still learning. Uh, We want to bless others, uh, but life is hard. Mark Twain, an American author, he said this, life would be infinitely happier if we could only be born at the age of 80 and gradually approach age 18. But we don't have that luxury. But what we do have is God's word to tell us how to bless others. It tells husbands and wives, here's what you can do to bless one another. And it tells all of us, for any given relationship we have, in any season of life, here's what you do to bless. Whether you're home or away, you bless, for to this you were called. So I want to invite you this morning to see how God would enable us to bless all the people that we live life with. So turn with me, open your Bible, turn it on, whatever you got to do, go to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at the first 12 verses. 1 Peter chapter 3, first 12 verses. This is found on page 1,015 on the Bible under the seat in front of you. 1 Peter 3. And as you're turning there, just a little bit of context here. This whole letter, it's about suffering. 17 times in the letter, the word suffering is used. And even more than that, it's alluded to. Peter knows that the ones who are hearing his message, they're scattered throughout the provinces of the Roman Empire. They're suffering. They're undergoing trial and hardship. And he's encouraging them. He opened the letter. He talked about salvation. They're called to salvation. Then he said, you're actually called to holiness too. It's a package deal. Then he showed how they don't live isolated. They're in a community. So they're gathered together as living stones in a church. And then as we looked at last time, things get intense because the world doesn't necessarily like the Christian gospel. So pressure was upon them. But they were called to suffer well sojourners suffering well on their way to heaven. So if, if the last section in chapter 2 was about, here's what's happening to you, this section, even though he ties in some themes, this section is about, what do you do to others? We've heard what they do to us. What do we do to others? How do we bless them? That's what this passage is about. First at home, and then everywhere. So let's read First Peter 3, 1 through 12. Read with me. Listen along. 1 Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, 
putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So the main claim, the main idea, the central thought in this entire passage is that we should be a blessing to those we share life with. That's what Peter is saying. And my prayer this morning for you, my prayer is that we would recalibrate our understanding, even in the midst of suffering, we would recalibrate our understanding so that before the face of a holy God, we are a catalyst for good and favor to those around us. We bring a righteous, godly benefit to those whom we interact with. Two truths to frame all of our thoughts this morning. Two truths. Here they are. This whole sermon will fit into these two truths. Truth number one, God's eyes and ears are on your marriage, so bless your spouse. Truth number one, God's eyes and ears are on your marriage, so bless your spouse. And then truth number two, God's eyes and ears are on all relationships. So bless your neighbor. Truth number two. God's eyes and ears are on all relationships. So bless your neighbor. Why do we need this? Well, we suffer just like the listeners of this letter did. And we need this because even though you may not be married at this moment, one thing is certain. All of us interact with those who are married. We all do whether it's those in our family, whether we want to be married, whether we have been married. We all interact with marriage, and if we don't understand this passage, we run the risk of not knowing what a godly marriage looks like, of some of the roles of husbands and wives. We don't know how to cultivate these characteristics to pursue if we want to be married. We don't know how to pray for other marriages around us if we pray through the church directory or or family. 
So we all need this. Even if you're not married, I, I want you to focus in on God's word here. But then, it's not just about marriage. The whole second half of the passage is about any relationship you might have. Um, Let's first look at marriage. Peter goes into the home here. So God's eyes and ears are on your marriage, so bless your spouse. So first, wives, listen up. If you're a husband, take really good notes here for your wife, okay? And then we can switch it around in a moment. Uh, Wives, listen up. The way wives bless their husbands is through their beauty. An attractive life is how you bless your husband. So don't get it twisted. Don't run off with beauty externally. We're going to talk about that. But a beautiful wife blesses her husband. And there's a type of beauty here that Peter holds forth. And there are some false paths of beauty and adornment that Peter does not want the wives to pursue. How should a wife bless her husband? How should she be beautiful? This passage is all about that. Submission, being subject to, being submissive. Submission is the beauty that he's talking about. Submission is the beauty. Christian wives at this time, and today, but at this time, they were in a difficult position, especially if their husband was still a pagan, if he was still an unbeliever. There's a Greek philosopher, a historian, Plutarch. He was a moralist. And here's what he said about the Greco-Roman society in the first century. This is not somebody looking back on the first century. This is a writer from their own time, the same time this was written. Here's what he said. He said, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods, so he's talking about Zeus, all the Roman gods. The gods, they are her first and most significant friends. For this reason, it's proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband's whom her husband worships. That was his advice to bride and grooms. Hmm. So this devotion of a wife to Christ would immediately cause friction with a non-believing husband. Perhaps he's going to feel embarrassed or he's going to suffer criticism from his peers or he's going to think she's disloyal. She doesn't worship all the gods that I do. Peter knows about this problem. He's writing to it right here. Did you see how verse 1 started out? Wives, be subject to your own husbands, even if some do not obey the word. So a husband who doesn't obey the word, he's talking about the gospel. A husband who is not a Christian. Wives, here's how you live with them. So by implication, if you have a Christian husband and he's a little bit disobedient or a lot disobedient, it still applies here too. This is the strategy of beauty for wives, no matter the type of Christian or non-Christian husband they have, with one caveat, and I'll go ahead and say it, an abusive husband. Wives, if you have an abusive husband, if you know the pain of abuse and violence, tell someone. Tell the appropriate authorities. If you're afraid to tell someone, ask your pastors to go with you to tell the authorities, or ask a friend to go with you. This submission that he's talking about, I need to say from the very beginning, he's not saying just grin and bear with it, with abuse. He's not, he's not saying that. But he is saying life can be very difficult if your husband is disobedient to the word. So what, what would you say? What would you say to a wife in the first century if she says, my husband's not a Christian, how do I win him to the Lord? 
How do I persuade him to follow Jesus? Peter says, use your beauty. He's not saying what I would probably say, hey, look for the right moment in conversation and share the gospel with him. Just kind of a one momentary thing. Peter says, here's something you can do all the time, every moment, day by day. You can be beautifully beautifully submissive. This is where the persuasion is. So the wife's not trying to win over the husband to her own way of thinking. She's trying to win him to the gospel, whether he's a Christian or not. And here it is. Here's the path. So what kind of ways can a wife pursue beauty? Well, she can first pursue the beauty of that right mix of words, the beauty of her speech. Peter speaks to that. She can adorn herself with words. Look at verse verse 1 there. This is the strategy of impressing or influencing the husband with her speech, that logical flow of her emotional words. Husbands look at it and think nagging. That's what a husband thinks. Wife looks at it. Wife's, a woman thinks this is not nagging. This is what you need to keep being reminded of. That's the most negative way to look at it. Positively, if it's not nagging, it's just a wife gently and wisely reminding your husband of things. Even in that, Peter is saying there's a certain situation where men are just not listening. Did you see that? They're not obeying the word. So you're going to have to win them without words. The strategy has to be different. If they're not obeying the word, you can't use words to win them. That's the irony there, even though it seems compelling and attractive. And this is all from the beginning of Genesis 3, isn't it? When Adam and Eve fell into sin, part of the curse, the woman was cursed with childbearing, the pain. The man was cursed with that toil from the ground, eating it by the sweat of his face. Do you remember what was said right in between those two curses? There's another curse in the middle of that where it says, Wife, your desire will be for your husband, and he's going to rule over you. That's the curse and the confusion between the sexes in marriage. The wife will desire to control her husband. This is part of the curse. She's going to try to be the one who leads and holds the authority, if not all of it, at least half of it, at least 50%. That's part of the curse. And often when a man shirks his responsibility in the vacuum of the leadership, the temptation grows even more. Somebody's got to lead. He's not going to do it. But this solution here that Peter is giving is as old as the curse itself. Whether good or evil, wives have always sought to influence their husbands. So it's not a bad thing. It's bad if you're seeking a strategy that's not according to God's word. There can be evil strategies, and there can be a beautiful, godly, good strategy. So that first evil strategy that we mentioned was using words, her speech. The second way that a wife might try to influence her husband is with her physical beauty. Did you see that there in verse 3 with her fashion? Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external. Don't let it be the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. This is interesting. He's saying, wives, if you've noticed that your husband doesn't listen well, 
and you've noticed that he's a visual creature, don't fall into the trap of then pursuing him in just a visual way that's just external. That was a real trap. It's always been a trap. Don't let your extorting be your adorning be external. This doesn't work because looks fade. Styles change. His tastes and what he thinks even is attractive may change. But notice that word adorning. It says verses 3 through 5. It's used three times in a row there, back to back to back, adorning. He's straining to make this point that even though a wife seeks to be beautiful, her adornment can't be outward and physical. In the ancient Roman world, listen to this. Historians who have looked at carvings and relief statues, they've actually extracted what the beauty looks were for ancient women in the Roman society. Here's what it is. They would have curls, curls that were stacked up, stacked up and braided up high on their heads. The curls would climb on top of curl, come up over the forehead, and there arose that at best it looked something like the hors d'oeuvres of a pastry chef. And at worst it looked like a dry sponge. That's what this historian is saying. And the back of the hair was plated. Not pleated, but plated. That was how the back of the hair looked. And there were braids that were arranged in a coil, a tight coil that looked almost like basket work and weaving. Something the wealthy could do. It took a lot of time to do this. So hairstyles then, hairstyles now, it can take time. Women know this. It can take time to get your hair to look the way you want it to look. You don't just snap your fingers and it looks the way you want it to look. As a naive guy who, who's never had more than much of a buzz cut in his life and just a little bit of hair, I hopped online to the Cosmopolitan website. And because I didn't know how to navigate it, I clicked on beauty products and I, I didn't end up in anything related to hair. I ended up on something called a dewy skin mist. The luminous dewy skin mist by Tatcha. It was one of the top products. It's $48 for 1.3 ounces of this stuff. And they're selling it by the, here's the caption below it. It says, the only way I can describe this Tatcha spray is like someone kidnapped Jennifer Lopez. They stole her glow and they bottled it up. And then they put it on sale at Sephora. Honestly, a couple of mists over your makeup and your face will radiate luminosity like nothing else. That's how they advertise it. First Timothy 2.8 talks about women, wives. Clothe, clothe yourself with modesty of apparel. It's okay to want to have a glow, but if you want the glow of Jennifer Lopez, where all the lights are on her and everyone's looking at her, that's not the kind of glow you want. I want to be able to focus on my sermon. And if, if that lady walked in right now and the glow was so radiant, I would get distracted at this very sermon. I don't, I don't want that. I want there to be a type of glow that there's, there's a glow when you look in her eyes, when you see the way that she's submissive. There's a different glow to your life than just the glow that's superficial. All this beauty stuff, it's fading. You remember earlier in the letter, at the end of chapter 1, Peter said, all flesh is like grass, its glory is like the flower of the grass, the grass withers, the flower falls. 
It fades. It's temporary, isn't it? So he's saying, wives, pursue the beauty of submission. Well, what, what is submission? Let's just define it real quick. Submission deals with one's relationship to authority and leadership. I like how Wayne Grudem and John Piper, they phrased it this way in an article called 50 Crucial Questions and the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Very helpful. Here's how they define submission. Submission is the defined calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and so help to carry it through according to her gifts. It's a good definition. Submission is part of God's design for godly marriages. The principle has always been the same. The principle was true in the first century. It's true today. The specifics of how she submits, we don't get that level of detail here. A lot of the specifics are going to be depending upon the, the type of marriage that you're in, what kind of weaknesses your husband has. Your gifts are going to complement him. But here's what submission is not. Submission is not brainless. It's not unaware. It's not an absolute surrender of the woman's will. Being subject to, you remember, this is the language in verse 13 of chapter 2, verse 18. Being subject to is actually the posture of the entire Christian life. He's going to say in chapter 5 later in this letter that we should be subject to elders in a church. In chapter 2, he talked about being subject to the governing authorities. That word subject to is the same word for submission. It means recognizing an authority and then cooperating with that authority. Willingly, gladly. Submission is a posture of the entire Christian life, even the Trinity. We actually see a glimpse of that at the beginning of Peter's letter, but the Father plans redemption. He plans it out. He sends the Son. The Son is submissive to the Father. The Son accomplishes the work of redemption, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. The Holy Spirit, then, is subject to both the Father and the Son, indwelling believers and applying the work of the gospel. So we should never think that submission is something that's weak. It's godly. Submission is beautiful. And why does it work best? Well, as we saw in verse 1, husbands, they don't listen that well. And if you go for that physical beauty, maybe a wife's just tired. I'm tired of trying to influence him. So maybe she's not even trying to be so physically beautiful to seduce him or captivate him. Maybe she's just trying to be beautiful for herself, for others, because that's the one thing she seems like she can control in the chaos of her marriage. Peter's just saying, wives, there's a different type of beauty. It's submission. And then he explains it. I'm so thankful he doesn't leave it abstract. He explains at the end of verse 2 and right there in verse 4, here's what comprises this submission. Look at the end of verse 2. It's respectful and it's pure. And then in verse 4, it's the hidden person of the heart. It's an imperishable type of beauty that's gentle and quiet. If you're not excited by that because you think, well, nobody's going to see it. It's the hidden person of the heart. That's why the end of verse 4 ends the way it does. God sees it. This is in God's sight. To him, it's precious. It's commendable. It's worthy of 
credit. Hmm. It doesn't fade. It doesn't rack up a debt and hurt your wallet or your checkbook like beauty products might. There's no hours on the door that say, ah, closed, like any beauty product, any, any store. If I tried to name them now, I would, you all would laugh at how I know maybe two stores for women to buy makeup. You know where you shop. You know where you go. Those stores, they're only open for certain hours, and even if you say, nope, where I shop, it's open 24-7, or I go online. Well, you know what? They only have a limited selection of beauty products, and they're only good for this season of your life. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, there's going to be something new that's the look that's sought after. Here's a look of beauty that is imperishable. It doesn't fade. And then Peter grounds this call to beauty and what it looks like by Sarah. Did you see that? Verse 5 and 6. Verse 5, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Verse 6, here's how she acted. Here's what she said. She called him Lord. And then it may sound weird in verse 6 when it says, don't fear anything that's frightening. Well, he's getting at this idea that if you take the beauty off of your words, where that's your primary strategy, doesn't mean you can't speak. Quietness here means that quietness of peace, not the loudness of, of war and, and arguments. doesn't mean a wife can't speak. But there's a gentleness and a quietness here that's persuasive, more persuasive than words, and it's more persuasive even than beauty. And when he says, don't fear what's frightening, he's saying, as a wife, you may fear, is this really a strategy that's going to work? What if he doesn't notice it? What if he doesn't notice my submission? What if he doesn't notice it in time? We have a timetable of how quickly we want to influence our spouse. And God's word, the Holy Spirit is saying, do not fear what's frightening about that. Trust God's design and trust that God will influence your husband even through your obedience to this passage. Sarah obeyed Abraham. When she called him Lord, we read about it earlier in the service. You remember when she called him Lord? It was when she was in the tent. He was out talking. She was in the tent. So even when no one else is around, she still had a posture of submission. She called him Lord. That's a a term of like sir or master, mister. It's It's a respectful term. We may use different wording today for respect. But the submission was there even when no one else was around. How precious, how beautiful. And it wasn't just a random day that everything went great or everything went mundane. It was a random day where three strangers, divine strangers, came. Wives, you know how tough it is when family comes to town or when you're about to go on a vacation or a trip, basically when things are different than the ordinary normal day, how you can think, he doesn't know what he's talking about, I need to kind of take the lead here. Even in that moment for Sarah, these strangers come, she's submissive. Home or away, we've got to be submissive. There's a lot of application here. You should talk over lunch about how you can apply this. There's a lot we could say. Enslavement, an enslavement to fashion. Wives, are you more concerned about a blemish on your body or a blemish on your soul? There's a difference. There's a lot we could say. 
think one safe place of application that I would say, and then we can end and move on to husbands, I would say this. Titus chapter 2, verse 5, commands older women to teach younger women these ways. So older women, how are you doing at teaching younger women to be submissive and respectful to their husbands, to love their husbands and children? How are you doing? If you've learned good things, teach that to the young women. If you've made a lot of mistakes, teach the mistakes so they don't make them. In some sense, I want to say that it's not my spot or Samuel's spot or Ryan. We are not meant to meet up with the women of this church one-on-one at Starbucks and start, hey, give me all the details of your marriage. Let me start telling you how to be submissive. Let me, let me go deep. We're not supposed to do that. We are supposed to call the older women in our midst to go train and disciple and teach the younger women this way of beauty. So I want to charge you as older women, who is it that you're teaching this to? Younger women, I want to charge you, seek out the older women. They may be uncomfortable to share. They may think what they have to say is not going to be something you like or it's outdated or it's confusing. You seek them out. How beautiful to have a church where women are seeking one another and they're seeking to apply this and they're even celebrating. Here's how my husband is being one to the word. Let's be that kind of church. So just to recap, the most beautiful thing a wife can do is be submissive. That's how she blesses her husband. All right, now, fellas, guys, husbands, here's a word for you, verse 7. And if you're not married, continue to take notes. Remember, this is for everyone, even if you're not married. Husbands, what should you do? Why do you have one verse and she has five verses? Does it seem unfair? Is it a joke? Well, there is a joke that why do men like intelligent women? Why do men like intelligent women? Because opposites attract. Right? So maybe... Maybe verse 7 is just one verse because guys need it. They need it just simply put. Husbands take a primary role of authority in their homes, authority in their marriages. They take the primary role of responsibility. In Genesis 3, after the fall, God goes to the man first, not because the woman had no responsibility in the fall, and not because it was only the man, but he goes to the man first because Adam had primary responsibility. And for a husband, everything in his, in his flesh is attacked in verse 7. Everything. There's different temptations for a husband. Verse 7, let's read it together, husbands. Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so your prayers may not be hindered. So for a husband, he can be tempted in his flesh to either be passive or domineering. Passive, thinking, you know what, I can take care of myself. She just needs to learn how to take care of herself more. Maybe you don't even say that, but that's how you act or you live. Or you can take the route of being authoritarian or dominating. If I'm going to help, it has to be my way, on my schedule, my methods. The extreme would be abuse. So husbands, whatever tendency of your flesh to abdicate, to to be passive and have a vacuum of your responsibility or too much, you're too heavy-handed, this passage 
strikes a heart right down the center. It hits the target of where you are supposed to live, how you're supposed to use your authority, and it has everything to do with your strength. Not the strength of how much you can bench press, but strength. It's strength of proximity. Did you see that word with her? In the original wording, that means that word to dwell with. So it's a strength of proximity. This means live with your wives. Spend time with them as you are able. Spend time with her. Living separate from her is possible. You can share the same address, the same roof, but if you structure your activities and habits and your space and time in a way that doesn't include her, you can actually live separate lives. Peter is saying live with your wife. Dwell with her. So the strength of proximity. Then we see here the strength of knowledge and understanding, this cognitive strength and energy. Notice that word there he said in an understanding way. This is according to knowledge. Other jokes abound. You know, what's the thinnest book in the world? People have joked and said, well, the thinnest book in the world is what men know about women. It's the thinnest and shortest book. But here's good news, men. This verse is not calling you to understand women in general. You can't use that excuse. It's one woman, your wife. Just like verse 1 of this passage was, wives are only subject and submissive in this particular way to their own husband. You live this understanding way to your own wife. And yes, there is a posture of submission and responsibility that all Christians bear. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But he's talking here about the home. And husbands have one wife to seek to understand. That word understanding could be translated, be considerate of. Use your knowledge. Don't leave it up on the shelf in your mind. Use your knowledge to care for her and love her. And what wife is there who, when they see verse 7, wouldn't say, that's the way I want my husband to be strong? If you had to choose between physical strength or intellectual or relational strength to anyone else other than your wife, your wife would say, no, 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 I want you to use your strength unto me. Help me flourish. I'm speaking to myself here. This is hard to do. Live with your wife in an understanding way. Understanding her preferences, her moods, her needs, her concerns, her fears, her desires for the furtherance of loving and caring for her. The personal insight you gain is meant to be lived out. This is the strength of what it means to honor her. When it says honor her, this is how we do that, husbands. This means there's things to learn about her. This means there's questions to ask. If the wife is submissive, she'll follow your leadership and begin to answer questions, even though it may be hard because she thinks, I've said this before. Verse 1, he's not a good listener, but here he is trying to lead. He's initiating something. He's initiating a conversation. He's honoring her. This would have sounded so radical to the husbands in the first century who thought marriage was just this means of of social standing or for economic gain uh, or for raising children. This would have sounded radical. You want me to love my wife, understand her? Here's what this verse doesn't say, husbands. It doesn't say figure your wife out and solve her like a puzzle. Like, you know those mazes you draw on, start... And, okay, I solved it. 
anytime you ever look at that maze again, you know the exact route you took. You can't do the maze again. You've done it one time. Your wife is not like that. Your wife is not somebody to be figured out once when you were dating. It's it's daily. Living with her in an understanding way includes even understanding what season of life she's in. Has your wife recently been pregnant? Is she a new mom? Is she a grieving mom because children have died? Maybe her children are grown and they've died. Is she a a wife who just retired? Is she a wife who just bought a home or sold a home or moved into a new apartment? A wife who's dealing with a particular trial in her family tree? A wife who's dealing with difficulty at work? A wife who's dealing with difficulty of you not obeying this verse? There's all kinds of frustrations a wife has. You should seek to understand them. And it doesn't say that you're going to have all the answers. I'm a guy. I know what you're thinking. Do I have to understand all this and then not only understand it, which is hard enough, but then come up with a solution? No, it's understanding involves initiating. And perhaps together you will come up with a solution. Her insight, her joy, her giftings will help you. And together you help her flourish. Husbands are finite and fallible in their wisdom or leadership. He's tired when he comes home from work, right? Or he's tired because he's retired and he's worked his whole life, right? There's a temptation to think, I'm just going to take care of myself. Why can't she take care of herself? I know as a husband, I used to think, before I was married, I used to think, we're going to go on all these trips, and instead of paying for a hotel room, we're just going to sleep in the car or put our sleeping bags at friends' houses on the floor. And I was just thinking about the cost of a hotel room, not how to help my wife flourish. Would that help her get a night's rest? Just yesterday with my family in town, we were going to Salt Lake Barbecue. We get there, it's packed, cars everywhere. After it cooled down from the rain yesterday, there's this big tour bus in the parking lot. We got the pager. We got a place to sit. We're waiting. And then my wife's like, honey, I forgot the bug spray at the car. And I didn't say much out loud, but everything, everything inside me. I'm tearing up because this is, this is wicked. This is a, a wicked... Um, sinful thought. The, the first thought I had was why can't she remember she needs to she needs to take care of herself. So Kelsey, I'm sorry for thinking that. Yeah, we went to the car. We got the bug spray. Um, And I don't think she got any bug bites that night either. Um, There's a battle that rages. Maybe it's never spoken out loud, but the husband can have wicked thoughts raging inside him. That's not the way of Christ. Christ wanted to be sacrificial. He could have said, you wait here, I'll go get it. 
think they even said that. And Kelsey said something like, well, then we're going to have to hold on to the bug spray throughout the meal here. I'll just go with you. I should have said, I'll go get it, and after you use it, I'll take it back. More work for me? Who cares? That's going to help her flourish. That's what Christ did for the church, his bride. He took the path that was longest, that was hardest, that didn't inconvenience her. That's what Christ did. That's what marriage is meant to portray. And all of this matters because she's the weaker vessel. She's not weaker in her spiritual status. She's not weaker morally. She's not weaker in her intelligence. She's not even weaker emotionally, as as men might think. She's just got a greater bandwidth. She's got more to, to carry. She's not weaker socially. She's, she's weaker physically. Peter's talking about physical strength here when it says she's the weaker vessel. All of this matters, though, because God's face is on a marriage. And I'm not making that up because it sounds good to make a point in a sermon. God's eyes and ears are spoken of. Did you see that? At the end of verse 4, God's sight. He's looking at how wives are trying to be beautiful. The end of verse 7, there's that equality there. She's a heir of you with the grace of life, but then God's ears are involved because if a husband doesn't obey this, even his own prayers are hindered. So husbands, application, if your walk with God matters to you, how you treat your wife will matter to you. Some more application would just be simply this. How you care for your wife may look different than any other husband you have known or in this church because wives are different. You want to serve her, use your authority well according to the uniqueness in her life. Her needs are not the same as her friend's needs or the woman on the TV show or the article you read online or your own mother. Your obedience to this verse won't look like your buddy's obedience because his wife is not your wife. This is difficult, isn't it? This is tough. If you're a husband, if you're quick to say yes to things and commit you and your wife to something, whether it's having people over or going out somewhere, how often are you checking in completely with her, giving her the full scoop of what you do know before you commit? There's a strength that is called for here. Husbands, use your strength to serve her. There's a strength even in submission. It takes strong and beautiful people who are confident of their union with Christ to live this out. And God's face is upon our marriages. So we need to be blessing our spouses. Our walk with God depends on it. Lastly, how do we bless everyone else? I'm going to let you fill in the details. We're going to treat this quickly. We're going to fly over it. Because life is so comprehensive. We're not just husbands and wives or desiring to be or have been. We are aunts and uncles. We are grandparents. We are college students. We are younger than that. We are coworkers. We are bosses. If we tried to share as much words as we just did on that section, we would be here for weeks and weeks. But it's, it's enough to simply say those virtues in verse 8, Those are key for every relationship. So the second point of this sermon, all relationships 
God's face, his eyes and ears are on all relationships, so bless your neighbor. This passage helps us recalibrate here. This is a Christian ethic. Peter learned these the hard ways as he was writing. Peter is wanting the Christians to live this out in the midst of the hostility around them. The way we treat others is not separate from our walk with God. When he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. These five virtues have nothing to do with your IQ, your intelligence. It's more emotional intelligence. They should mark our interactions with one another. In the West, these characteristics of our culture, the me-centeredness, the individualism, the private rights, the personal freedom talk that we have is actually running against the grain of verse 8. Verse 8 is all about having a, a regard for others, focus on others. We need these in full measure. And then the, the buffer against hostility is not only verse 8, but verse 9. Don't repay evil and reviling when it comes at you. And it's not an if, it's a when, just like earlier in chapter 2. It's not if you'll be spoken of harshly as a Christian, but when. So no matter what you're doing in your family or at work or at home or community, this is what you do. You do verse 9. You do not repay evil for evil. You actually overcome evil with good. All throughout the New Testament, this is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 5 and Romans 12. It's a common refrain. The apostles learned it from Christ. Do not repay others with evil. This is how you live the good life. This is how you live a satisfying life with a clean conscience. You bless others. And then verses 10 through 12, he's, he's giving a summary of wisdom, of how to live in a way that you fear God. But I must stop and just say this. It's going to look insane to other people if you're a husband or a wife who lives this way or if you're a coworker or a college student who lives this way and you've taken verbal abuse off, verbal threats, tearing others down, you've taken that off the table, that's not in your arsenal. People are going to think you're insane if somebody slanders you or says something mean to you and you don't then take the opportunity to get them back or be passive-aggressive. People are going to think, are you insane? Have you lost your mind? Well, that's actually what verse 10 is about. It's about an insane person. And you're thinking, I didn't see the word insanity. What are you talking about? Flip quickly to Psalm 34. Flip over to Psalm 34. This is a quotation from Psalm 34, verses 10 and 12 in our passage. Psalm 34. Insanity. Look at the, not verse 1 of chapter 34, but the superscription of verse, of chapter 34. This is inspired. It's in the original language. It's just as much a part of verse 1. It says, this is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So when Peter says in 1 Peter 3, if you desire to love life and see good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit, turn away from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. This psalm came out of a situation of insanity. David was fleeing. He was captured by a, an enemy king. And he acted insane. He had spittle running down his face. Spit just came running down his beard. He made marks on the doorpost of the gates. 
He thought he had lost his mind. But it was a tactic. It was the only thing David could come up with to not speak in an evil way or to lie. He, he acted insane. People are going to think you're insane if you, if you don't respond with evil and hatred. But obedience here leads to blessing. It says there in verse 11, back to 1 Peter, seek peace and pursue it. Peace is hard. Peace in relationships, it's worked for. It's not automatic. You have to work for it. When things arise, conflict, you have to bring it out in the open. You have to deal with it before it becomes unmanageable. Peacemaking and maintaining peace is hard work. But all of this matters, whether it's marriage or any relationship. All of it matters because of verse 12 there. The eyes of the Lord, his face, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. So the summary thought of today, are you blessing those around you? I'm so thankful for the gospel, the grace that's in the gospel message. We've all failed at this. We've all used our actions and words to tear others down, not to bless them, to have self-regard, not care about them. And that verse 12 ends with the face of the Lord is against those who do wickedness. The greatest wickedness you could ever do is reject the gospel. That Christ came, he lived this out. His bride, the church, all his other relationships, he lived this out because he knew you could not do it. Even if you tried today to live this out, it can't erase all the past wrongs you've done in these areas. But Christ did live it out. He went to the cross willingly. He died. He was buried. He rose again and he ascended. And it, it was proof that God had accepted his sacrifice. His way of living was pure and holy. And now it says here that God's face is on the righteous. Those who accept that turn away from their sin and they trust in it. Everyone who does that is now united to Christ. And God's face is on them for favor. Sure, he will discipline us when we're unrighteous. But his face is on us for favor. If we disobey or if we don't care about this message and these words today, the last verse tells us his face is on us for judgment. So I'm calling you today, bless all those whom you share life with. All of them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. Help us to bless those whom we live with at home, at away, at work. Lord, help us to look like Christ. Help us to commend the gospel. Help us to be a blessing and not somebody who just tries to be neutral around others. Help us not to pick and choose when we bless. Help us to try to be like Christ, a constant blessing. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word here. It's in your name we pray.